The worst thing you can say is, I don't know, I'm just the driver. That, that's the, the, one of the most common responses that I get from, from professional pilots. That is not the thing to say to the FAA. You know, I have no idea what's, I just, they just pay me and I fly. Those are, the, those are not the correct answers. That's John Clark, aviation attorney and chief counsel for Jet RVSM. The best thing to do is say, as far as I know, we're on a business trip for so-and-so, and these are the passengers, you know, hosted by the company. So, some answer like that is a, a solid answer. And then if the, you know, if the paperwork doesn't look right, say, woo, that, you know, look surprised. On this episode, John explains the flight department company trap and why it matters to professional pilots. Max and I will give some relationship advice to an airline pilot and we'll share another funny story from the road. You're on 121.5, the emergency frequency. Welcome to the 21.5 Show, a podcast for professional pilots by professional pilots. Join Dylan and Max, both with experience in flight instruction, the airlines, and business aviation, as they talk to a variety of industry experts, share stories, and have a little fun along the way. Welcome to the 21.5 Show. It's the show for the pros. My name is Dylan, and I have 4.6 hours in a Phenom 100. That's an incredible accomplishment, Dylan. Episode 45, let's dive right in. Yes, Max. Let's start with Aspen. How's your Aspen? Yeah, that's right. I I haven't been Aspen in a long time, actually. You probably haven't either. No, I've been there in like a couple years, but yeah. what's the story in Aspen? Yeah, they are now requiring a negative COVID test to go in. So if you've got passengers that you're going to be taking in there, they're going to have to have a, a test. I think it's going to be similar to kind of what Hawaii's doing and Alaska and some of these other states. So very familiar. Yes. So heads up on that one. But I think there's still kind of information developing. I haven't seen any definitive information yet about if you're a flight crew, if you have to have anything or if it's just mostly for your passengers. But just a heads up. Another heads up. Did you see what Starbucks is doing for professional pilots? And flight attendants? Besides taking copious amounts of their money on the reg? Yeah. Well, a little less money this month because they're doing a full first responders get a free cup of coffee program for December. And pilots and flight attendants are on the list of first responders. So, God, I I wonder how many captains have tried to be the hero and be like, listen, guys, coffee's on me. Yeah, I got it. And like brings like the release or something. Be like, here's all the crew, you know, like just to get it for free and bring back. And he's the hero for tell everyone figures it out. Everybody, give me your crew badge for just a minute. Just real quick, just they require for the discount, ten percent. You know, everybody counts. (laughs) So yeah, so I can imagine that's going to be knowing knowing flight crews. They never abuse those kind of things. So sure, it'll be a great program. Which will Starbucks will be excited to continue into the new year. And then finally, on uh, what we've been up to, VBase. Do you know what that is, Max? I do. That's about the extent of my knowledge, though. I know it exists. I know you've been <laughs> intimately involved, though, with 
as usual. Intimately involved with every step. So, of course, as folks in business aviation know, our biggest conference every year is the NBAA base conference they have. This year it was supposed to be in Orlando, but they had to go virtual. So we did a little uh, virtual NBAA conference and got to cruise around via like this. They have these interactive booths you could go to. So you'd like log in and then be like, oh, you can kind of cruise around and oh, there's a interesting company and you could go in and check, click around and check it out. So it was definitely different. And was there a virtual uh, afield party at Hakkasan where you just kind of uh, fist pumped oh. in your computer? Oh my gosh. <laughs> we sometime we'll have to tell we went to the was it oh yeah, it was Av Fuel last year we yeah. went to in Vegas. It was huh? at uh, Dre's, yeah. Dre's, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they did that. So hopefully all of the vendors are just rolling all that money into next year's Vegas. Yeah, right. There's going to be some real A-list acts at the the parties, I'm sure. That's right. So anyway, so VBase, they they ran it. There was some helpful information, some good, excuse me, some good online tools there. You know what I did secretly was uh, apply on all the giveaways. And so there was some good swag being given away and it was kind of hard to apply. You kind of had to click around a while. So I'm hoping not many people did it so that my odds are going to be really good because let's face when it. When are the results going to be posted? I Hopefully soon. I haven't seen anything yet. So, I mean, I, who doesn't need another flight safety zip up jacket or... <laughs> Is that really, av, what's that really yeah, on there? Or a uh, nice av fuel cooler. I mean, come on. Shout out Fuel. What else? That's about it from VBase. It was just a couple days long. Like I said, better better than nothing. And definitely, you know, a sign of the time. So all I think we're all excited, hopefully, for next year to get for things to get back to normal, hopefully in Vegas. We'll be there. Should we do like I was thinking we should do like a live show or something next year. Yeah. Well, let's just let's just take it one step at a time. Let's just make sure that it's gonna happen before we get too excited. I feel like that's what I've done with ski season so far. I'm so excited. And now there's one, no snow and two, who knows what's going to happen. So hmm. water ski season. just take it one day at a time, you know? Yeah. Water ski, slush ski season. <laughs> <laughs> In other news. Yeah. I get to hit a sound effect myself. I've been warned. Shot across the bow came this week from my airline. So We'll see what happens. It's for in April. So that's an eternity these days. And my attitude remains the same of not worrying about things that you cannot control. So I will wait and see what happens. How many airmen at the horn? 1,200 and something. Man. And that's the first time they've ever sent out a warn notice or done anything. So, you know... I don't know that to be a hundred percent true. I, I think very okay. early on at the very beginning of the airline, there was some sort of furlough notice sent out, but in any sort of recent history, yeah, of course, okay. that's, yeah, that's pretty unprecedented. So, yep. Well, fortunately you have, uh, uh, a lot of pers- good perspective. I think, you know, it's been so good over this year to talk to have all these conversations with people and talk to James and uh, talk to these furloughed pilots and, and, and find out that really the only thing that you can control is your attitude. Like you said, so that's it. That and preparing for the possibility of having to seek other employment, which obviously as everyone knows, I'm in a little bit different situation as I 
preemptively took a different job and took the leave just because I had the opportunity. But yeah, so it's easy for me to sit here and say, Oh, I'm just not going to worry about it. You know, uh, I get it. So <laughs> don't, don't everybody write in and, uh, and message me on LinkedIn because <laughs> I'm very self-aware. I get it. But e- either way, my attitude would be the same if, it, if things were different where it's just keep your head down and control what you can. And, but I got to tell you, Max, I mean, we're, I mean, just in our little neck of the woods, we're seeing a lot of opportunity pop up in business aviation. So it is encouraging. My good friend, Ken Casey, you all know from episode one, Number just one, talking yeah. to him yesterday. It, things are crazy right now on the buy side there. People, because of the new administration and the fear of losing some of the tax benefits next year of purchasing a private jet, there is a mad rush for purchasing airplanes right now. And there is very little inventory. It's all picked through. And then even if you do find a jet to buy, it's very, very difficult to get it into pre-buy. And these all have to close by the end of the year, which is rapidly approaching. So that's... Airplanes need pilots and people are buying up all the ones that are out there. So so that is yeah. the good news. If you do have some, especially if you have some business aviation experience and some relevant type ratings, and you know, I think that there's opportunity between now and the end of the year, for sure, of uh, airplanes. So, yeah, in our local market, too, we've seen a number of jobs. Here's a little free tip for uh, those of you following along at home. If you haven't started networking with aircraft salespeople in your local area, you should start doing it right away. Those are the folks that know about jobs that are in, or uh, possible jobs that are in the pipeline because they know the deals that are coming. Yeah. Most importantly, they're the ones that know about possible jobs first. Yeah. Because a lot of times the timing is is so very important. And money spent buying an airplane broker lunch will not be in vain. Let's just say that. No. Yes. That has been one of that the could best. could be some of the highest return on investment that you can make. Yeah. All right. Next topic. Every show, we do the same thing. We run around in circles. The latest on the COVID vaccine, Max, so we published our last episode, what, two weeks ago when we've received messages from, I think, three or four different listeners with different information on what they've heard. All of them are conflicting. I don't want to necessarily report any false information, but my point is here is, there's a lot of questions right now and uncertainty. And well, they were all sourced from representatives yeah, at the FAA, um, the different FAA. you know yeah. regions and stuff yeah. like that. The answer is, in my opinion, I guess all we can speak for is yeah. what what we're going to do, right? Because this is the one yeah. thing we talk about on the show that actually affects every professional pilot. You know, sometimes we talk about LOAs that is really only for business aviation, and we talk about unions and that's only for other segments this is one thing that affects every single professional pilot listening to this because everybody is expected to and i'm sure anticipating getting the vaccine once you're able to and i think what we've seen is a bunch of conflicting information from different sources within the faa and and clearly the faa is going to have to publish some sort of guidance on this right Yes. I was actually talking with one of our listeners yesterday. Shout out to Richie, who gave us some info from one of the infectious diseases folks at the FAA. And they were indicating that there's going to be some meetings here in the coming days, in internal meetings with the FAA, and that they're still kind of talking about what they're going to do. But it sounds like some official 
guidance is going to be released because that's the problem. There's no official guidance yet. And so, you know, we've heard, oh, if you take the vaccine, you might have to self ground for two weeks or, oh, as long as there's no effects, you're fine. Or some are saying, no, the FAA is going to specifically approve. We don't know where no one knows yet. We heard back from Harvey Watt that, you know, they advise, they say, look, there's not enough information out there right now. They don't recommend any pilots take it yet until we have a lot clearer guidance. So the other thing that was crazy too was that a lot of the information we got said, you know, oh, the FAA is not going to say anything heads or tails about uh, vaccines. That's your business. And as long as you have no negative effects, you're fine. And I'm like, well, (laughs) that's kind of risky to me because if you, I mean, what if you do have negative effects, then what, you know? So, yeah, well, and it's really, it's the same guidance that we, that we've learned through this whole medical journey we've been on since we started this show is that seek advice whether that's if you go to the doctor for something weird and and to make that call if you have the resources available like like we talk about with harvey watt or a master whatever you get whatever you have at your disposal but two just don't jump the gun on stuff like again get guidance call before you do something or at least have some some hard guidance from the feds and so Person, like we said, all you can do is control what what we're going to do, and uh, you know, I think we're unanimous in that we're not going to take any vaccine until there's hard guidance from the the feds on what exactly the the ruling is. Because the other thing too, you read about these vaccines, and it's not like a one shot flu shot deal where where majority of people don't experience many side effects besides maybe a little sore shoulder and a red spot. I mean, this one they fear it's it's a some of the vaccines are required two doses, right, and there's there are fears that a lot of people won't return for the second one because of some of the side effects from the first one. Oh, so I, I hadn't think, read that. Yeah, yeah, I think that the, this vaccine can have more significant uh, side effects than I think that we're used to. So again, the, I'm sure the FAA will have their two cents on that. Yeah, one last thing I'll mention is one of the AMEs had mentioned that, you know, the first round is probably going to be going to healthcare professionals anyways, but they're projecting that basically by the time they roll it out here mid-December, and give that first round. It's, it's, it looks like it'll be about a million people. I, that's just what one one source was saying. But they'll have basically a million people's worth of data in the first month. So pilots probably wouldn't be eligible in that first month, anyways. So there might be, you know, there'll be there will be more data out there. But anyways, we'll continue to monitor it. I was going to say one other thing I wanted to add while we're on the topic of medical. I just got my medical last week, and. One of the things that I've done is, again, from learning kind of how this whole thing works is block 60 is where you mark if you've ever been in the hospital or had a surgery. You know what I'm talking about? So I made a where you a lot of times report the same thing and and write whatever and then say previously reported no change. Right. So I have a document where I write my block 60 comments in and I copy and paste it every time because I think the thing is, is that nobody really... They don't look that closely at that stuff. And then if something happens or you have a medical event and then they go back and look at your applications and there's inconsistencies there. So I started a document one with all my block 60 comments that I have, which is like three from like knee surgeries and you know stuff like that. And I copy and paste it exactly as, as my AME had advised me to do it. So every time it's the exact same thing on every one of my medical applications. And then the other thing is all your visits in the last three years is all your medical visits is I keep in the same document. I just write down because, you know, every time you fill that out and you're like short on time and you can't remember when you saw the doctor for what, even if it's just a physical. So which is what 
almost all mine are, but I always put in there. I, you know, eye doctor checkups, all that stuff. I just put in there. And so that way it's always consistent. And then you have, cause you have to put the same one for three years of your medical, right? So that way it's always the same thing. So everything looks very, very uniform. So I've always, I've been in the last couple of years trying to clean that up. So if they ever look at my medical application, my MedExpress, you know, application history, it's very, very uniform and very cut and dry. That's really smart. The uh, doctor's visits every year and stuff. Yeah, because that's the one that's always hard to dig up. And the date you did and the address of the provider, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. It's so much easier just to do on your phone when you're done that day. Yeah. Stay up with it. Well, since we're talking about medicals, we might as well mention the sponsor of this program, our friends over at Harvey Watt. They provide pilot insurance for airmen across the globe. All of that loss of medical insurance that your union might provide or your employer provides is probably through Harvey Watt. You can get more information about all of the coverages they have, not only the loss of medical, but also the life insurance program, which I have there. Very easy to uh, complete the online application. Very few exclusions. It's perfect for any professional pilot. HarveyWatt.com for more information. Thanks, Harvey Watt. All right, Dylan, we had somebody that wrote in for some flight advice. I'll read it here and we'll, we'll discuss. Hey guys, love the show and I'm in need of some advice. I'm a younger dude in my 20s getting my career going at a regional airline. No furlough flute for me yet. I recently met a girl and I'm really into her, but she doesn't work in aviation. So it's taken some work to explain my schedule and lifestyle to her. I have found that it is pretty easy to meet girls in the dating scene as the whole, quote, I'm a pilot thing helps you stand out. But it seems like sustaining a relationship with someone you really like might be tough. Do you guys have any advice for me on how to make a relationship work with the crazy schedule and lifestyle of a regional airline guy? Thanks. From Cockpit Romeo. I think we should bring in a a special guest, someone we both know very well. That is my wife and uh, your sister, Lindsay. (laughs) Lindsay is a veteran of being married to a regional airline pilot, a corporate pilot, and a charter pilot. (laughs) And an unemployed pilot. Yeah, and an unemployed pilot. I've worn a lot of hats over our years together. So welcome, Lindsay. Hi, thank you. So cockpit Romeo, Max. Yes. Well, here's what I would say. Here, I'll give you my take and then you guys can say your piece and we'll see what happens. So I think that the biggest thing is to have empathy when you're a pilot. I've been a regional pilot as well, but I've also been a corporate pilot where we're doing crazy stuff that I've talked about on the road while I've had somebody at home raising children while I'm out gallivanting around the world sometimes, or even just on an air three day airline trip or four day or whatever. And I think the thing is, is you have to have empathy for the person, the other person. And what I mean by that is put yourself into their shoes and look at what you're doing and you're, you know, around the country, maybe you're out with who know you know, people they don't know where you're out having drinks or, or dinner or whatever. And, and, or really they don't know what you're up to all the time. And so I think you just kind of have to be empathetic to that and maybe call a little more than you want to FaceTime a few more times than maybe you want to, and just try and put some of those concerns that people will have at ease that are at home while you're out at work. So that's what I've always been is just kind of take a step back from what you're doing and put yourself in their shoes to look and, and have some empathy for, the strange situation that your job puts people in and try and do things to help put them at ease. And I think that goes a long way. That's good. What do you think, Lindsay? 
Yeah, you know, it's this kind of thing. I think it goes in stages depending on, you know, how old you are, where you're at in life and and whatnot. Because I remember, you know, when we met in our earlier mid 20s, it was it was like exciting, like, oh, I'm dating a pilot. That is cool. And like, we can fly places for free, which ended up not being as cool as I thought it was going to be. But uh, (laughs) that was different. But yeah, and you would be gone and I would miss you and it was hard and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then you have, you know, we got married, had kids and just all the stuff you talked about in your history. And, and that was really hard to be at home, especially, you know, when you're bearing the brunt of raising small babies and just when there's a lot going on here and you need the support and and you don't have it. So it just, it goes in phases. So I would say, kind of reflecting back on onto our mid 20s for um, the sake of staying relevant to cockpit Romeo's question. I don't know. I think what Max said, there's what Max said carries a lot of weight, check in a lot, show that you care about what's going on back at home, asking a lot about what they've been up to that day back at home. And then Dylan, you know, took a very good strategy early on of not flaunting in my face when he's, you know, out at drinks and just kicking back on the beach on a Tuesday when I'm at a job I hate all day long, every day. And, you know, just, it's just kind of staying in tune with what the, you're living two very separate lives for half of the time. And you need to keep that in perspective and be very mindful of how that can very easily drive a wedge between you. So keeping that communication open and just staying mindful of that. Yeah. Don't be afraid to downplay some of the things <laughs> on the overnight, right? Yeah. The trip sucks. It's always raining wherever you're at, you know, whatever you got to say, you know, the thing that I learned, especially at the regional airline level is like you mentioned, Lindsay, you're almost living two lives, right? Because especially on the typical schedule there where it's a, it's like four days of work, three days off. It's basically half of your life you're at work and half of your life you're at home. So a few things I learned about that, for me especially, when I was on the road, I had almost no responsibilities when I was not flying. So it was very easy to just be like, well, now I'm going to watch whatever I want to watch or I'm going to read whatever I want to read or eat whatever I want to eat or do whatever I want to do. And so that kind of carried over when I was at home because that was what I was used to doing for half of my life was kind of like whatever I wanted. So that was very challenging. And the second thing was it took me a while to realize I basically have to live my life in three day chunks. So I have to be, I'm not a great planner and manager of time. And so when I'm at home, I have to kind of be really efficient and I have to be sensitive to what my significant other wants to do because we're only going to be together for a couple days. So I remember a couple of times I'd go on a trip, Max, and then I'd come home and you'd call and be like, Hey, let's go, you know, four wheeling or do something. And we'd run off and then I'd, I would leave Lindsay at home and she'd be like, look, I can only see you for a couple of days. And then if you were going off and doing whatever you want on your days off, like that, that makes things even more difficult. So it's, there's a lot to consider there. And I, I think the last thing is if you're in aviation, finding a spouse, them being independent is important. There's a lot to consider, but good luck, Romeo. Got <laughs> It's going to take, there's going to be a learning curve. You know, to his credit, at least he's early on and he's trying to figure out and have a good plan. So he, he probably has a great, good chance of success at at cultivating a healthy relationship with this crazy lifestyle that we all lead because he's actually prospectively looking at it and trying to figure it out. Yeah. And also I'd say too, is make expectations very clear for the future. If you start thinking about a future with somebody too, because I could remember at times being like, 
why can't you just not do this and do, you know, work in an office and our life would be so much better, but that would have never worked out. You know, like say you did that, which you, you wouldn't and shouldn't have, but you know, that, that would never, that wasn't going to be what made us happy. So it's just, it's, it's, it's a lifestyle that evolves a lot in terms of how it affects your family and your relationship. And then it goes through many ups and downs, but it's just about clear communication and, and expectations. I think when yeah. it comes, you know, it's all said and done. And just to kind of to wrap it up, make sure that she knows how lucky she is to be dating an airline pilot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Basically repeat that and uh, make her really realize that she's the lucky one here. Do the opposite of that. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to make so much money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to fly for free everywhere around the world. Don't believe yeah, it. No. Anything you want. Anything you want. You're whatever you want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anytime. You ever flown standby? You ever missed 100 <laughs> flights in Europe? It's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Lindsay. I have a feeling well, we could do a whole show on this and maybe we should. So uh, if our listeners have more comments on what they think about flight advice, what they would tell Cockpit Romeo, or they just want to share their experiences of how they have made uh, relationships work in the crazy world of aviation, we'd love to hear from you. It's info at 215podcast.com or on the socials at 215podcast. All right. Thanks, Lindsay. All right. Thanks. All right. Uh, last thing before we jump into today's interview... Some reviews, Max. We actually got a ton of reviews in the last couple of weeks. I guess everyone was sitting around Thanksgiving holiday and was bored. So yeah, don't worry, everyone. We're not going to read them all. (laughs) Yeah, no. One of my favorites here I got was everything you need and more. As a student at a 141 school working my way toward a career in aviation, I couldn't be more grateful for all the information I've received from listening to the show. So many of my questions have been answered as I start thinking about the future and so much more I would have never thought about. Of course, the nonstop humor makes it that much better. I'm definitely a forever listener. And that's from Ryan. Thanks for the review, Ryan. Also, TMT Dark, Kurt S., Joey Jets, and Flyboy47367 all wrote reviews. Shoot us an email with your address and I will mail you some swag. Thank you for doing that. Appreciate it. And if you want a chance to get some goodies from us, just write us a review on your favorite podcast app or platform. Most folks do it on Apple. And we really appreciate the support. Forever listener for our nonstop humor, Max. That's high praise. So, hey, you guys are funny. Say something funny. Don't let it go to your head. No pressure. So uh, this is kind of part two of the uh, series we started on on some of the paperwork stuff that uh, can really get professional pilots in hot water, uh, especially in business aviation. So you were kind enough to kind of set this all up, Max. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, motivation for for wanting to have this conversation with John Clark? Sure. So this, what we're going to talk about is probably one of the most broken rules in aviation for it from a business aviation perspective. And that is, they call it the flight department trap is just the name that's been coined in articles from NBAA and other places like that. But essentially it's the fact that running your airplane operation from an LLC, oftentimes with the title of the N number in it or one, two, three AZ LLC or some other aviation themed LLC there's nothing illegal about having a name, but it but it just kind of encompasses what I'm what we're talking about here, and that that is running a company that sole purpose is to operate operate an airplane is illegal if you don't have a lot of structure behind it, right? And so 
this is one of the things that I'm dealing with with the flight operation that I'm running in starting it up is that, okay, you have to get LOAs. Well, and you have to, if your business that owns the airplane doesn't have some other sort of revenue generating business, right? Then you have to do some things to make sure that you're operating within the bounds of the law. And this has come really to the forefront here from the FAA's perspective. And they're, they're really starting to inform and most people that aren't in compliance probably have no idea. I mean, I was one of those people in the past at a different flight operation where I just, you know, that's, that's what a lot of people do. Well, I think what what's interesting and John gets into this is what you're trying to do from a tax standpoint and what you need to do from an FAA standpoint can be completely different. So you can structure things that from a tax standpoint are great and like, yes, this makes a ton of sense, but that creates a lot of extra challenges from an operational yeah. standpoint. And you're so. trying to have two sides of compliance with two entities that have zero communication and could care less about what the other one needs or requires. And so setting this all up to have it work in concert with the tax law, the IRS law, and with the FAA is, is, can be a real challenge depending on your individual organization. So it's one of those things in aviation that it, as we've tried to do on this podcast is bring to light stuff that a lot of people probably aren't aware of and maybe help someone along the way. So here's our attempt at that with uh, John Clark. All right, everybody on the line with us today is John Clark. He's the chief counsel at Jet RVSM and an attorney going to talk about the flight department company trap and a bunch of other legal issues as they pertain to pilots. Welcome, John. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. I think you guys are pretty brave considering lawyers probably rank at the bottom of people pilots want to speak to on any given day. But I do think we can get some good information out to your listeners. I'm licensed in California, so I have to give the standard disclaimer. Anything I say is either educational or just my opinion, not intended to be specific legal advice applicable to anyone's particular situation. So no attorney-client privilege created through any of our discussions today. So with that out of the way, let's get to it. John, could you give us just a little bit idea of your background and how you got into aviation? All right. So I... I Sort of had always longed to be in aviation, had gone to law school, but didn't intend on practicing law. I was actually working in Wichita, Kansas for 3M Aerospace, doing you know, major account relationships in aircraft manufacturing deals with Boeing and Spirit and Bombardier, et cetera. But that 2009 crash got me laid off. And so I dusted off my legal license and I'd helped Christy found Jet RVSM back in 2006. And so th those things came together. So for the last, oh, what, 12 or so years, I've been practicing aviation law and also the chief operating officer for Jet RVSM. Yeah, Jet RVSM, you're working a lot. Can you talk a little bit about what you currently do? Right. So my role is has sort of gone from the back office to the front office, thanks to the FAA and primarily to the National Air Transportation Association. Uh, in 2018, they inserted some language in the Re FAA Reauthorization Act, basically pushing the FAA to start enforcing archaic rules that were, you know, basically technicalities for Part 91 operations. And so that has brought to the forefront a bunch of really pretty annoying and 
technically complex rules that affect Part 91 operators and professional pilots. So now I'm spending a lot of my time before we apply to the FAA for letters of authorization, making sure that the operator structure is properly in place. So we're sort of bridging from the ownership structure that was put in place at closing. Now we need an operating structure before applying for letters of authorization, if, if you want to do it correctly. Well, I guess that brings us into our first topic, commonly known as the flight department company trap. If you guys Google that, you'll come up with articles from MBAA and, and, and trade publications and all kinds of stuff. But John, why don't you just start there? It's kind of what you were alluding to and, and you know, tell us what it is and why it's illegal and why nobody knows about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a pri- uh, I mean, the FAA has sent out a notice to pilots, an informational notice to pilots warning them that this is an issue and that they're they're going to be going after it. But I think the biggest problem is that everybody is familiar with illegal charter or the part 134 and a half. That's a concept that's pretty well understood. So pilots and operators tend to think, well, I'm not holding out. I'm not charging anybody money. It's just me. I own the company, et cetera. Well, that solves the 134 and a half problem, but it doesn't solve what I call the part 91 and a half problem, which is <laughs> <laughs> you created a private carriage for hire company to own and operate the aircraft for either personal transportation of the member of that company that it's usually an LLC. So it's a member or a shareholder or the aircraft was put in a special LLC with the you know title. Happy cloud aviation is the one Christine and I usually, usually like to point out. Uh, something like that. If it says if it says aircraft aviation transportation holding leasing logistics things like that, it's going to raise questions as to was this company formed specifically to take title to the airplane and then to run operating expenses, pilot expenses, fuel expenses through that LLC. And if you've done that, you have created what the FA would consider a private carriage for hire because if the purpose of those flights is for the personal transportation of the sort of the owner of the company or for the owner's other businesses could be construction oil and gas manufacturing whatever it is that is not basically is is illegal yeah that's it's interesting and and the the objection you get is what do you mean i own the airplane and the answer to that is that I, I think I'm stealing this from you, John. No, no, no. You own a company that owns an airplane, which is the difference, right? Right. And any, any, if you are speaking about, if you want to get more narrow than let's say just, if you Google flight department company trap, you're going to, you're going to get a list of all the lawyers in the, the game because, you know, everybody's written an article um, on this topic. But if you Google FAA 2017, cooling legal interpretation there the fa chief counsel's office has made a very plain statement in 2017 as to why this isn't legal and what constitutes a flight department company so that's probably the best best way to you know really narrow down if your particular setup looks anything like that which is basically an llc flying for the personal transportation of the the company owner and or for other business interests. Now, in that opinion, they basically say the IRS may have a disregarded entity concept, but the FAA does not. 
an LLC is a separate legal person in the eyes of the FAA, and they do not care who owns it. And that's always the challenge, right, of, of being in compliance with the FAA, but also having that mesh with your tax strategy, which is equally important to the owners of these airplanes, right? Right, right. And I, I think that's the best way for pilots to approach this because the the IRS and the states are more aggressive than the FAA. And I refer to as taming the three-headed monster. You're trying to satisfy these two taxing entities and a compliance entity that don't speak to each other, don't agree on the rules, and but have you know very technical requirements. And so an audit is is one of the most likely ways that an improper structure will come up, either in the state or with the IRS. And by the time the IRS gets around to auditing something, it's years down the road. And and frankly, for the IRS, it's like shooting fish in a barrel that the auditors are becoming trained to see a jet to understand a lot of the, the intricacies of the rules and know that there's probably a big dollar prize there if they can get it. You want to start when you're approaching an owner, you know, you're starting with the tax strategy. If you know the tax strategy, then you can develop the compliance strategy. It's very hard to do it the other way around. Okay. So John, in a sense, if you could dumb it down as, as much as possible, what specifically makes it illegal to just be funding an LLC with capital contributions and running your flight operation through there? Right. So, so if, if you make a capital contribution to an LLC or you pay an invoice from that LLC, or if you in any way reimburse that LLC for the operating expenses, so fuel, pilots, landing fees, you know, anything that's related to operations, that is considered compensation of an aircraft. And it's for hire because the aircraft is not being flown for the business of the entity. So, you know, if you, if you ask, you have this, you have this entity that owns the airplane. What I always ask, what business is that in? It's in the business of owning an airplane. Okay. You just flew down to Las Vegas last week. Were you, what was the, what was the purpose of that flight? Well, the purpose of that flight was for some other personal or business unrelated to the company that owns the aircraft. So the FA would consider that as hiring. Somebody hired the aircraft, meaning they asked, please take me from here to there. They do not care that it's all owned by the same person, right? The company is a separate legal person from the person who said, I need to get from, you know, here to Las Vegas. And so that's the issue. It's for, it, the plane has been hired and then compensated. And compensation can be anything of value, including a a capital contribution into the checking account of that ownership LLC. So that requires you to essentially seek certification under part 119, and which is sort of the, the gateway to 135, 121, et cetera. So has there been any attempt by the FAA to change this and make it easier to comply with? I mean, cause, cause clearly you're not, holding out to the public and, and conduct, you know, but, but it makes sense what you're saying. Has there been any way to ch attempt to change the law to make this? Well, I, I have spoken to a few years ago, I happened to cross paths with the FA chief counsel himself and 
brought up this topic and got a, that's not going to happen in our professional lifetimes. And (laughs) (laughs) I have raised it with the last two heads of flight standards and was told, sorry. And even worse, the pilots, the one who's going to be left holding the bag, unfortunately, rarely the operators take a lot of legal effort, but the pilots are easy to go after. So it's always a kind of an apologize, shake the head, but there's, there is simply no appetite to change these rules. But let me explain why, because, you know, as you, as you mentioned, well, we're not holding out, we're not doing that. It's all technicalities. True. But let me tell you what's, what I think is, well, what I know is really going on, which is there is a public policy against isolating liability for an aircraft unless you are under the scrutiny of the FAA. So if you want to isolate your liability away from you for operating an aircraft, you must go under some higher level certification where the FAA can scrutinize your operations. They're willing to let you fly under the less restrictive Part 91 rules if you agree to be liable for your own operations. So the real problem is that the owners were attempting from day one to isolate the liability for the operation of the aircraft. That's the real problem. The second problem is that very often, if the FAA finds that the person who is being, who's using the aircraft, so you've got some passengers on board, they have a purpose for being on the plane, uh, you fly them there. If the FAA were during a ramp check determined that those people in the back did not fully grasp that they were are liable to the FAA and the public, for airworthiness and the safety of all phases of flight operation. That's the other problem. So if, if you don't grasp those liabilities and, you, and you've tried to isolate them in some other entity, you don't get the less restrictive Part 91 rules. That's what's you know, really going on. Okay. That actually makes some sort of sense to, the, to why this is a thing, right? Because everybody's – the whole point of people normally setting up these – entities to own the airplane is to try and insulate themselves from liability. Doesn't work anyway. Yeah, right. The, the, if where, whatever the purpose, if you're flying a personal flight, unless unless they've really met a lot of these rules, it's very tight. If you're flying a you know vacation flight for somebody, that person's liable. If you're flying on a business trip for some company, it doesn't matter what structure you put in place. They're liable. Isn't the pilot's it, liable. It's the analogy of, of putting the tissue in front of the freight train to try and... That's about how much insulation it gives you, right? Right. It's a speed bump. It, it would be an eyebrow raised by the plaintiff's attorney that's going to cut through that thing. It does off... There, there's reasons why you put those structures in place. So I'm, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't create those companies, but that brings us around to just... The problem is they st- they created an ownership structure which was legal, but they didn't create an operating structure that was legal. And you need to do both. That's that's great, John. I want to focus in on that the pilots are often left holding the bag when it comes to enforcement. So let's just go through a scenario, and you can kind of walk us through what are the red flags. What should we as professional pilots do if I show up to do a trip? On an airplane, maybe it's the first time I've flown the airplane, I see that the airplane is registered under, you know, 123AB LLC, and there's a lease to Acme Widget Corporation who owns the LLC, and the I've got LOAs that I should look at, obviously the names on the LOAs, there's all sorts of different things. So can you help walk us through what professional pilots, the red flags we can look for when we're, when we're going to work for a new operator? 
Okay, sure. Now, very often, I think you would show up and you'd have the registration on the aircraft and you'd have the LOAs, if there are any, are in the name of the registered owner. And it has some, you know, if it says cloud sky aviation aircraft transport, any of those, those, or if it's a tail number LLC or a serial number, anything like that, you're, you've already got, you know, a problem. It'd be, it would be better if prior Half our to, listeners are turning the volume up right now. On the, uh... <laughs> right now. Uh, and, and we'll get to what, what to do if you're flying, if you're getting ramp checked and you're in that situation. So there's a few things you, you might do to make things easier on your, yourself, but ideally what you, you would want to find a dry lease. And if you find six dry leases or 10 dry leases on there, then you should be, thinking, okay, do we really need to have all these on board? Because the FAA is trained to look for multiple dry leases. So, and this happens a lot during ramp checks. You know, they, they, they ramp check, they ask who the operator is, do you have a dry lease? And then they see the pilot fumbling through a stack of dry leases, looking for the right one. That's a terrible red flag. So the first step is if you're flying for a particular operator, locate that dry lease if there's other ones there, set them aside. And then I, I usually would say, who's paying my fee today? So if I, if whatever is the lessee's name on that lease, that's who should be paying you. And there's a lot of different variations of this, which is the problem. But if you're being paid by an agency, if you're being paid by a, a subsidiary, some other subsidiary of a corporate group, or you're on a personal flight, but they're running it through, they're paying the fuel on a personal credit card, but running your fee through a company, those are all red flags. Essentially, the name on any dry lease, the name on any letters of authorization, the name on the fuel card, the name on your paycheck should all match. That, that would be the ideal situation. Hmm. And that's pretty. That's a pretty easy one to check. You know, I'm just thinking about scenarios that I've been in. It's very easy to see. You know, the the name, and then check the LOAs just for the operator name. That to me, I, I bet those are in conflict pretty often. The most recent NTSB ruling, which was against Captain Reed Phillips and suspended him for 240 days, the the FAA tried to go after him. He he leveled off an RVS in airspace, and when he presented during a ramp check the LOAs, it was in a different name than the lessee that he was flying for. They, the FA just didn't, they didn't, they got him on a bunch of other stuff, but they, they didn't manage to get this, but it does show that the FA does care. If, if you're, if you come into their sites for whatever reason, and they, they look at the air traffic uh, records and they see that you were in RVSM airspace with the wrong name on an LOA, they, you know, they, they will hold that against you. So say you do get busted. What, what are you looking at? Like a sub, suspension revocation? Like what, 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 what happens to the pilots? I've only seen suspensions. I haven't seen any revocations. There'd have to be some pretty, they'd have to be real mad uh, at you for that. Even Reed Phillips, basically the FAA had warned him at least two, maybe three times to stop flying for, for the, his aircraft management company that he was working for, at least I'm kind of simplifying, but, but they had 
handed him cease and desist letters and and he he listened to the company lawyer telling him that everything was fine so he ignored the faa so that's that's just as a <laughs> side note here do if the faa tells you something's wrong and you shouldn't be flying stop flying because the next thing you could get is a suspension so take warnings very seriously that would be the easiest way to stay out of trouble i would say I've definitely seen a few suspensions over the last 10 years. Most um, commonly, they will basically pull you into the office, cancel all the LOAs, read you the riot act, tell you you got to clean up your act. You know, that kind of makes your life miserable for a while. All right. So, so John, uh, if we are professional pilots showing up, we're starting to see some questions about the paperwork. Maybe there's a lot of leases like you had mentioned. What should we as professional pilots do to protect ourselves? All right. Well, the, the first thing to understand is that the FAA operates on a facts and circumstances basis. So they're more concerned about what's actually happening than what's on the paperwork. So I actually think it's better to be honest about the circumstances and and understanding that maybe the paperwork isn't right and that might be a problem. But but if you're truthful, even despite the paperwork not being correct, that's going to, I think, is going to avoid a suspension. That's going to allow the FAA to try to guide guide the operator through compliance and, and leave you without a problem. So... The first thing I always would would say for Paju is you're you're now as of as of the last NTSB ruling where they said the contract ATP is responsible to understand the nature of the operations that are being flown. So you should know, you know who who is authorizing this flight. Is that person on board? And then before you take off, you should be saying to the passengers, if anybody approaches us on the ramp during this trip so-and-so is operating the flight now if it says if the if the registration is in that acme aviation llc probably through conversation you kind of know that you're really flying for this particular person who's in the back of the airplane and so you you might be able to just sort of establish on a facts and circumstances basis is this is this a personal trip for that person or is this a business trip for a for a company and so without getting into the whole operational technicalities, as a pilot, the best thing you could know is, are we flying for a business or are we flying for a person's recreation, vacation, and entertainment flight? If you can just understand that. And then if you can agree with the passengers, if the FAA approaches us at any stop, the purpose of this flight is such and such being operated by so-and-so. And don't even bring up the fact that the registration or the LOAs are in the wrong name. I mean, these are, you know, this is in the worst case where you can't fix things in advance. You can't say no, and you're forced to be uh, PIC. You know, you can't, can't uh, beg off on uh, flying PIC. So then if you're at a ramp check and you're approached, you just want to make sure that whatever you previously agreed is, is who the, who's operating the flight. And, and what can you do as a pilot other than be truthful? Because in some cases, like in this uh, last case that the NTSB ruled on, the FAA looked in the cabin and looked at the water bottles and noticed that they had logos on them for an aircraft management company and, and considered that 
a bad sign. So they'll start looking around for little things suggesting, you know, who who's operating this flight. So best if you said, I'm flying for this construction company and we're on a business trip or this aircraft is normally operated for the construction company, but we're on a personal flight for the CEO and his family. You know, some, something like that. It's time to get rid of all those monogram napkins, Max. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely. You right. Any if it looks like this thing was arranged, yeah. They, you don't want to see logos for the aircraft management company or the F. Well, the FBO is fine. The last you know, pick up all the water bottles from the last FBO you were at. Well, that's a, actually. I mean, I don't know. This maybe this is silly then, but you know, for a lot of flight departments i know in our airport you'll see the pilots with logoed shirts something something like that so maybe that might also be something to consider huh that's the way to get your part 135 competitors to whistleblow you if they see that hmm. i mean those are the kinds of things that get phone calls to the faa to come check it out uh, if they see two uniformed pilots with logo shirts dropping passengers off at the fbo and they don't know whose certificate that aircraft is on they might just i mean this happens on a regular basis that the number one way that people get caught by the faa is from a charter operator at the on the airport complaining about an mm-hmm. aircraft they've seen a couple of times that looks suspicious but what, what, one of the things i do want to say is some things not to do the worst thing you can say is i don't know i'm just the driver that that's the, one of the most common responses that I get from from professional pilots. That is not the thing to say to the FAA. You know, I have no idea what's. I just they just pay me and I fly. Those are the, those are not the correct answers. If it were only that simple. <laughs> <laughs> that's called that's called being an airline pilot. That's that's what that's called. <laughs> right, right. The best thing to do is say, as far as I know, we're on a business trip for so and so, and these are the passengers, you know, hosted by the company. Some some answer like that is a a solid answer. And then if the, you know, if the paperwork doesn't look right, say, woo, that you know, look surprised. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Yeah, and, and yeah, right. And talk about how you you know if there's any issue, you'd be you'd anything you could do to keep moving along and and not you know basically say hey, could we you know we we need to get to our next destination? Can I can I call you when I get back to my home office or the hangar? You know, you hand them your business card. Anything that says you're not trying that you know anything as long as it doesn't look like I don't care and you're trying to avoid them or trying to cover up something. Those would be the things you don't want to do. All right. So let's say that you have, you know, one, two, three, ABC, LLC, and it's operated just like you described. You shouldn't. And it's, that's all that the LLC does is own the airplane and pay for the operating expenses, et cetera. So now, you know, you listen to this podcast, it brings to light that you're doing something illegal. How do you bring that situation into compliance? Okay, and so there's a few levels here, but uh, I might mention when in the past at uh, the NBA events when we could all meet in person, every time the FA regulators or let's say a lawyer would stand up and start talking about this, you would see three or four chief pilots run out of the room <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, you could see it the ripple run through there. So this always uh, catches people uh, off 
off guard. So the best, obviously the best timing is, is just, just to throw this in here is if you're working with a flight department, you're acquiring a new aircraft. If they're working with an aviation CPA on their tax strategy, and it's a, it's an aviation specific CPA who works with other regular CPAs, but just on the aviation part, they will guide you guide the operator through this process and you're going to going to get you know 60 80 percent compliant right there so that, that's always the best bet if you're in a cleanup situation and you can get with the either the in-house counsel their local business attorney you know you can always always call jet rvsm if you're working on loas we, we i talk to a lot of owners ceos etc just to sort of gently bring them uh, up to speed on these things if i can but if you're right there on in the field, so you're saying that you're there, it's wrong, and you're supposed to get on the plane and start flying. Yeah, you're, you're listening to this. You're a pilot. That's the company you've worked for for five years, and we've just brought to light that your your operation is not set up properly. Now, so what? how do we come to Jesus? Yeah, maybe not not for the flight tomorrow, but just to get the ball rolling. What's the what's the process? Okay. Well, so so it, let's just say if you did just show up on the ramp and if there's any way you cannot be piloting command, that's the day to say, I don't mind being first officer. I'll fly <laughs> SIC, okay, because it's the PIC that's good. If there's a ramp check, that's all, all eyes are going to be on the PIC. But let's say you're working for somebody who's got this this problem. If, if there, I mean, I would think if there was anybody inside the company who was taking care of the money part of it. Usually a chief, I find that a chief financial officer does not like to risk tax problems or compliance penalties and fines, et cetera. So if you, if they're, if the company's big enough to have somebody like that, then, you know, you can try to try to start with somebody inside the company, either the in-house counsel or the CP, chief, chief financial officer controller. If it's a smaller operation and you're just dealing with the principal, you know, if you find some of these articles online, what, what, what I find is you say, there's been some changes at the FAA recently, and there's an evolution of enforcement and scrutiny. And things which were accepted in the past don't look like they're going to be accepted in the future. And so... You know, if there's a way we could sit down and kind of look at this, that would be great, you know, as, as a starting point. What I'm finding is I'm having a lot of pilots come to me who've never had a written agreement with their with their client. Or let's say you're an employee pilot, but you're not you're you're an employee for a subsidiary, but you're flying for the parent company. It, there needs to be some paperwork there. So you you as a part of a compliance discussion. When I draft a pilot service agreement or an aircraft management agreement, if a chief pilot, let's say, is handling everything, it's going to contain a bunch of language in there that's almost like a teaching instrument. So that if you, so so a lot of pilots now are are taking a solid agreement, sitting down to negotiate that, and out of that comes these compliance issues get raised in that in that discussion. It's not necessarily an easy discussion. I mean, they, you know, somebody can certainly call me up at Jet RV 7 and I can help them in a specific situation. 
Yeah, I mean, I just imagine for many of us that have been working for a company that's maybe had an aircraft for a while, and then we're this is being brought to light. You're gonna you're gonna run into the resistance of well, that's the way we've always done it, or you know, our other you know operation we've been doing it like this for a while, so it just seems like it'll that initial convincing of hey, you know, things are changing or have changed or or new information's available. That'll be the the hardest part. Right. 2016, 2017, the FAA started revising its internal guidance to inspectors. So, and then you see these legal interpretations and there was sort of a re-emphasis. Then not until late in 2018, I think it was that the National Air Transportation Association, which is lobbying on behalf of primarily the charter industry, that saying, hey, there's a lot of illegal charter going along. We'd like to put the you know, kibosh on all this illegal charter. And so they created a website, they created a task force, they started lobbying the FAA. And so they're, they are the ones currently pushing the FAA to investigate years of basically whistleblower phone calls and complaints about illegal charter. But I, I have spoken with the you know, high level members of, of NADA tenants meetings and I've kind of tried to say, is it where do you draw the line between the illegal charter you're worried about and then these sort of technicalities? And there isn't there really isn't a, a bright line there because their goal is that they feel that most businesses should actually be putting their aircraft on a charter and then chartering it for their personal and business use. So they see for a lot of these small operations, they'd much they think it's better off if it's all run under part 135. So, you know, that's, that's not an argument that anybody's going to win, but so they, they, they basically are treating what I call part 91 and a half, the same as part 134 and a half. And so you're seeing them, for example, go into an FAA region, get the FAA, the FISDO inspectors, you know, sort of on board with this. And then they call a bunch of people in, and start, you know, telling them what they're doing isn't right. So you'll see this slowly region by region. So, you know, if, if you wait, maybe maybe you'll get a call from the FA to come in and and spend a few hours there discussing these problems. Yeah, it sounds like basically at the end of the day, the Part 91 operators are just get, would get caught in the crossfire here with the more traditional 134 and a half right. type stuff. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's not. This, it's not what the FAA or the National Air Transportation Association is going after, but it is getting swept up in the net. Now, what I tell people is I don't think you need to lose sleep over this because if you have a compliance philosophy, uh, and it, you know, so if you're in a ramp check and or what with this new thing that's coming, I think called a Part 91 Department Inspection, where they're actually going to dig into the operational control stuff. So it's uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a super ramp check. Yeah, base inspection. Uh, Isn't that what they call it a lot of times? Yeah, too? base inspection. So, so, and we had the first one, we had one in with a customer in January, and they don't care if you don't have a hangar or base of operation. They'll just say, tell me what airport you're going to be at, and I'll meet you there. And and so I have said, people tell me, oh, we, we don't have a base or we don't have a hangar or this or that. If it doesn't care that what they'll do is call you up and it's it's like a scheduled ramp check, but but they're going to go into the operational ownership and operational structure. But I, I I think 
as I said, the first thing is don't lose sleep over it. Think of it as a project for the next year. Maybe 2021 is the year where you say you have conversations with the owner saying, you know, I'm getting a little concerned because I'm hearing about some increasing scrutiny and enforcement and that the pilot certificate can be at risk or you can find all of your letters of authorization just canceled. And I'll give you a couple of examples that happened in the last year or so. Pilot changed his cell phone number. The, the chief pilot changed his cell phone number, called up the FISDO to change it on, change that for the letters of authorization, all canceled and for multiple operators. And they and so they were, you know, without any warning, they weren't able to enter any special airspace, no international travel. So it's better to kind of get that going versus you call up to make a small change and find yourself with the canceled LOAs. Or the other thing is they're looking for some people to do these base inspections on. And if you happen to call up that day, you could get, you know, they could say, oh, there's somebody we can work on. So that that's what I'm noticing. And just to kind of the most basic sense, John, because bringing your specific situation into compliance could be as easy as one dry lease agreement and, and kind of changing your accounting as far as, you know, going as far as having multiple leases with different entities within the organization, blah, blah. But, but basically just to, just to give people an idea of, of what you may have to do to then be in compliance. Can you just kind of give a quick and dirty version? Let's see. Uh, yes. The quick and dirty version of something the American bar association called mind bendingly complex. Uh, <laughs> Translated into uh, pilot uh, speak, please. Yeah, 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 right, right. Okay, so so once again, first, and so if some, let's let's say if somebody came to me and and said, "Run me through your operational compliance check," and I've been doing this because this is a little gentler way for. Uh, an operator to see what's going on. So if I'm doing an operational compliance check, we're going to spend, it's almost always about 90 minutes on the phone with the principal, with the inside, the person who's handling the money, maybe a lawyer or an outside CPA. And we're going to go through an exhaustive list starting from how do you like to operate this plane? What, what, who, you know, who's using the plane? What kind of passengers are you having on here? Business, personal, et cetera. And, and, out of that process, we can say, okay, well, here, here are your, you know, options for compliance. You have, you know, two or three levels, and and some of them are seventy percent compliant, some are eighty percent compliant. If you were fifty or sixty percent compliant, you're already better than everybody else on the ramp, <laughs> because uh, the the non-compliance is, I think, I my best guess is eighty percent. So eight out of ten. Operators, if they were to come in and talk to me, would find out that they're not technically compliant. Now, there's different there's different shades of 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 things, but 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 I do get it where somebody brings in their plane and they you know they're issuing invoices to four different companies that they own for use of the aircraft and charging for passengers. Now, not holding out, just doing it within their own company, but but. That kind of money changing hands, that's what gets CFA's attention. If it turns out that no money's changing hands and it's just the wrong name on some paperwork, you know, that that's that's better. But we would go th- we would go through that. And what 
generally comes out of this is either you have co-owners of a plane and they have a they should have some sort of co-ownership agreement that the FA will recognize as compliant. Another way to do this is to have a, a dry lease and money can change hands under a dry lease for the use of the aircraft. I also do something called a gratuitous bailment. If, if, if there's a need for one party to exercise operational control, but they're not going to pay for it, there's no money changing hands. They just, you know, it's Acme Aviation LLC and the actual operator is Acme LLC. So we just need to get the right to exercise operational control transfer. So that could be as easy as, you know, a short agreement to accomplish that. Then there's also under under the FARS is the something called joint ownership agreement. So if you have joint owners, you can actually have one operator who's legally liable for the operations of all of them, sort of a wet leasing ex- exemption. So that's why it's hard to simplify because there are there's a kind of a suite of compliance tools out there. But the simplest one that people hear of is a dry lease of the aircraft from the owner to the operator. Okay, that makes sense. Well, that's the flight department company trap. If you find yourself in the situation, you got to get to work. And if you're in full compliance, kudos to you. I like that. I like your idea, John, of a, a project for 2021. Yeah, that's 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 a good way. Now, you, you don't want to walk up to the boss and put the brakes on the whole operation so we get this remedied, I think is the idea. So let's move on just to some other professional pilot legal issues, John, that that you're well versed in. You you alluded to some contracts and pilot services agreements that you draw. When are those appropriate and in what, what scenario? Okay, so there's, I basically see three types of agreements and only one of them is is absolutely essential so if if, so many pilots now are we talking about uh, contract pilots are we talking about employee pilots all of the above whatever is appropriate and whatever scenario is what we're interested in if you are an employee of the operator you don't need any paperwork because you're you're an agent. You're under the command and control of the operator. You're perfectly fine. However, if you're an employee pilot, but the name on your paycheck is a company that's different than the one that it's paying for the fuel, or paying for your hotel, or or somehow you get the sense that your paycheck comes under Acme Payroll LLC or Acme Logistics Services LLC, but the, the CEO is the CEO of you know, Acme Manufacturing, that, that is an issue where you'd want to get with the HR department and simply say, uh, it needs to be clear to the FAA that I am an agent of the operator of the aircraft. I need to be able to quickly show the FAA if, if I'm approached that I'm under the command and control of the operator and not this subsidiary. And the first piece of evidence the FAA looks at is who paid you. Because the presumption is whoever paid you has control uh, of you as a pilot. So uh, that brings up this term pilot agency, which is the most uh, critical thing. Whenever you are being paid by somebody other than the actual true operator of the flight. Now let's go to the contractor. If you have an LLC, a lot of contract pilots have their own LLC. And so they're 
they have some company writes their LLC a check. Now it could be an intermediate, it could be a an agency that facilitates contract pilots. It could it could be anything. I see I see all kinds of things, but it's very often that there's a that there's some check going to the pilot's own LLC, but there's no direct relationship in writing between the individual pilot and the true operator of that flight. So again, the way that's solved is with something called pilot agency. And if you have that in writing and it looks pretty and simple, and then you hand that to an FAA inspector, that's going to be the end of that problem. You have just now shown that you are under the command and control of the operator. And that's essential for part 91 compliance. So if let's say they're doing a lot of other stuff in the back that you don't understand or isn't quite compliant, but you've got your pilot agency with the right party, that's going to go a long ways to protecting, you know, your, your backside. And is this pilot agency, so let's just say, let's uh, scenario here, Max is the chief pilot on an airplane. He calls me, can you come do a one-off trip for us? Can you explain that a little bit more, how contract pilots can really use okay, that? Well, well, so let's say you were coming to me, I would ask you, do you, do you have a pilot LLC that you use? Mm-hmm. I do, yeah. You do. Okay. So you're going, you're going to ask to be paid in the name of that LLC. Is that correct? Yeah. Do you, do you do it as a handshake? There's no legal requirement for it to be in writing. So do you do a handshake agreement because you've, you know, you've known each other and you just submit an invoice after the trip or do you have a little form agreement that you use with your LLC? It's always just been a handshake agreement. That seems like what, what happens a lot. Right. So, so as a lawyer, of course, I'd say I don't recommend that because it's it's great until something goes wrong, and and now you you don't have the proper indemnities and and promises to be on the insurance. You may think you're on the insurance, but but you know, do you, did you get an endorsement issued to you, et cetera? So a lot of sins can be solved by just having a nice pilot service agreement, which covers. All the, all the legal, the business and legal aspects of flying, not compliance, because the FAA doesn't care about this pilot service agreement so much. So now you have that in place. If if the FAA asked who paid you for the flight, remember the 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 FAA doesn't recognize the LLC as you. They consider your LLC as your employer, and you have been contracted by your employer to the operator. So. That leaves you uh, flying for for the you know CEO who's uh, telling you where to go, at the same time that you're getting paid by your own company. So that's where you yes you'd have a a form. I I, I generally create a a form for that pilot that they can use with all of their operators. But there's some intricacies to it, so it's hard to just have some one size fits all. But generally, you can create for a pilot a form they can just PDF that they can just fill out with each operator that basically says I'm a limited for, you know, for the purposes of your flights, I'm a limited scope agent of yours under your command and control. And, and if you have a handshake agreement, that's fine because, because just with the FAA, you can um, show them this agreement and it would establish it would establish that you are working for the correct party even though you're not getting paid by that party so that that's what the pilot agency really accomplishes is it shows 
that you are properly under command and control, even though you're not being paid directly in your name from that operator. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I would say max most of the contract trips that happen, it's all handshake. And I don't think there's oh, a lot for of sure. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 just a matter of defining the relationship, right? And so rather than implying it all the time, which yeah. is always a good right, idea. Right, right. I mean, if somebody comes to me, I try to, I set them up with a, basically, which is a template for them. You go, you go through a lot of, of all the different aspects of what they do, how they're involved, you know, how much are they managing any operations? Are they handling supplemental lift? Are they, are they arranging ground transportation? What, you know, what are all their duties? What's the limitation with, you know, I, I, I spend time with pilots on saying, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to have the operator understand that if you haven't had 10 hours sleep, that that next trip, you know, it might not be going now on the one off that may not make a difference. But, but I'd say with your regular, with your regular clients, if you have one agreement signed once, then you can just accept the trips, you know, as is, but you try mm-hmm. to have sort of a, a one-time master agreement but you know these things are so specific and there's a lot of personalities involved and so so when i'm working with somebody we're trying to really you know does this operator maybe they they don't want to they'll they're more comfortable if they docusign something that's short then they'll be okay but if they have to print out and look at a long agreement they won't do it yeah so so we try to work through the psychology of the situation and then draft just what's needed you know, to get by in that, that particular case. But, but, you know, once again, the worst case, if you just have the pilot agency, your butt is covered and the rest of it's just, you know, business terms. Right. Strategery. I like it. Well, John, we're going to have you take your lawyer hat off now and shift gears a little bit and talk about your, I don't know, software developer hat. I'm not sure if that's the right hat you're wearing, but you guys are working on something pretty interesting called the pre-flight app. And this has to do with the contract pilot stuff we were just talking about. So can you just explain to our listeners a little bit about this project you guys are undertaking? Right. So, so when we first saw the tide changing on this compliance stuff and we and we started to see pilots getting left holding the bag as we talked about we thought what could we do so that all of this complexity could be basically digitized under the hood so that you could focus on hey be here on this day fly from here to here for this you know here's here's you know you make your own travel arrangements or we'll, or we'll make them for you whatever just those things that you care about uh, the logistics of getting a flight done and if in the process of that just by using it by let's say running that transaction through a platform if there ever were was an incident you could print out all of the documents the compliance that it would show the you know the right signatures on the right pieces of paper but you wouldn't have to be burdened with that all the time and if you signed up an operator for it in order for them to participate in the app you know there's there would be master terms and conditions that would apply that would be that would be focused on that so that was you know one one motivating factor for uh, setting up what what I would call pre-flight ops. The 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 next issue would be we heard from many pilots repeatedly that oh you know I was asked to fly and I showed up at the FBO and I ha- I didn't know the pin code to get in the gate or I didn't know who I was flying with or I had no idea what the paperwork on the plane was like 
So the second part of this platform is that if you're an operator on the platform, we've already looked at that paperwork. And in the app, if you're if you were assigned to a flight, you'd be able to look at a checklist and see, yep, LOAs are in order, not in the name of a flight department company. So the other question is you'd be able to trust that the operators you're flying for have passed a minimal level that your certificate isn't going to be at risk by taking this job. So that that was sort of the, the second part of it. When we first started this, there was a massive pilot shortage and very few people were were interested in this and and people were more interested in pilot notification and there was an app out there called pure flight magic started was created by herb dyer down in louisiana this was an app that was designed to basically send out notifications or request trip offers to pilots because in this shortage, people were, you know, maybe getting tired of uh, having to go through their contacts. And that piece of the puzzle, we ended up acquiring that from Herb and you know, doing a lot of uh, surveys with contract pilots, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it. And so we decided, well, we'll lead with that. So we have Preflight Connect, which is a trip sort of offer a notification platform that's much simpler. It doesn't have all of the compliance stuff built into it, but if we get that going, then we'll, you know, we'll bolt the two together down the road. Okay. Well, so it sounds like the better name for this app should just be CYA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and certainly the, the pandemic and the pilot uh, shortage going to a pilot surplus, we, we've sort of put it, on the back burner, but we do we are ready to work with small groups of operators and pilots that so let's say if you've got an operator that doesn't use full-time pilots, they have maybe a five go-to pilots that they like to use. Then and then somebody maybe the chief pilot knows of what has a let's say has the master flight schedule and sends out trip notifications. And in this it's pretty simple app that would allow you to set up the trip, it would go out to, you could say, I want this to go to a small group of pilots that I've approved. I want this to go to just my approved pilots. Then you could just send it to those pilots whose certificates you've uh, logged as approved pilots who are also on the, on the system. It, it allows for three tiers or three levels or three groups. You, you can divvy it up any way you want, but Basically, you can put pilots that you know into three categories and you could notify the first group. And if no one accepts, you could then notify the second group. And if that doesn't work, maybe the third group or maybe you have three different aircraft you in the fleet and you want to group the pilots by the aircraft. But So there's a few ways to just work with the pilots you know. Eventually, if you can't find somebody you know, you would then be able to broadcast that out to the pre-flight network of pilots. But these would be in order to be in the pre-flight network, you have to be current in the type ratings you're listing. You know, you have to have your medical has to be current. Everything has to be, you have to be legal to fly. So, because we heard people say, oh yeah, can you send me to training? Or I just need to do a couple uh, takeoff and landings and then I'm good to go. And so that's not always what the chief pilot wants to hear when he's looking for somebody to, to fill a role. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really nice to be the, the great filter right now, especially with there's so many pilots looking for work and everything else. I imagine it can be pretty overwhelming for a chief pilot to separate the uh, wheat from the chaff. Right. So if I were working, generally what, right, what I'm doing right now is if, if you want to use Preflight Connect, we're manually handling the compliance stuff. So we'd want to do an operational compliance check, make sure that the, that the, that the, you know, if it's a couple of operators and six pilots, make sure all their paperwork is in place. So we can get all the paperwork in place. And then, and I, I generally do the legal work through my legal practice, and then we can handle the pilot notification stuff through pre-flight. Okay. That sounds like a, uh, Pretty valuable app. Now, the big, what does it cost for the pilots or the operators, or how does that work? If you go to the app store right now, it's $50 to download Preflight Connect. However, if you email us at connect at preflight, and it's P R E F L I T E dot com, connect at preflight dot com. And if, if you can meet the criteria, we'll go through some questions, et cetera. Uh, if, if you have a small group, then I'll send out redemption codes so that you can download the app and use it for no charge. And and if you're participating with us actively, we wouldn't charge you for you know the next two years. What we want to do is we want to meet the need first, get traction with pilots and make sure it's working. So that's why we want to work with some beta testers who aren't going to get charged anything. But then you know that maybe that app will be $50 a year or something like that. But then the, if they go on to the operations one, that's, that's quite a bit more involved. So we haven't, we haven't gotten to the pricing on that yet. But you know, my goal would be for it to be you know, $500 or less per year to have what is essentially you know, a, a lot of horsepower under the hood. Right. We'll have all of those email addresses in the show notes for anyone who's interested um, or can be found on our website as well. Dylan, anything else for John? I watched the webinar that, that you participated in from the NorCal BAA recently. We'll have a link to that as well. The, the thing that I walked away from from this conversation is uh, everybody's situation is a little bit different, right? And it seems like you can't just read one article and then kind of figure out what you got to do. So I'm walking away from it going, I'm probably going to need to bring in a professional like yourself or somebody else to consult with our operation to make sure that that our compliance is is assured, I guess, in the future. Right, and and what what we're trying to do is making the the operational compliance check. I I, you know, I need to to hear a little bit about what's going on, but it's a you know a thousand dollars or less fixed price to find out what's going on without you know, before you walk into the attorney's office and put down the ten thousand dollar retainer, yeah, I, because. You know, the main thing with operators is they know what happens when you walk into the attorney's office. You have this open-ended expense and you don't know where it's going to go. So what I like to be able to do is say, hey, here's what you're facing. And then if you want to use a firm, we have many excellent colleagues in every state that we can refer people to. We know aviation CPAs. We can bring those people in if they make sense. But the main thing is that the operator can understand in finite terms, what they're dealing with for a fixed price and a few hours of their time. That sounds like money well spent. If want to stay up to date, they can can send an email to either john at jetrvsm.com if you're 
uh, interested in sort of the letters of authorization type stuff or connect at preflight.com. We we don't spam. We send out, if we see something happening in the industry worthy of writing an article, we'll send that out. So we sort of maybe four or five times a year, you might get a briefing on something that's important, whether it's letters of authorization, whether it's uh, Part 91 compliance, or if it's a professional pilot type issue. So if somebody sends us an email, we'll put you on our email list. So that's some way just sort of to, to get some updates here and there on what we're doing, maybe keep it, it remind you sometime in 2021 that you were meaning to fix something. Well, great stuff, John. We certainly appreciate your time today. We'll have all your contact info in the show notes on our website. And I suspect when we have our next compliance question, you'll be our first call. So thank you very much for uh, spending some time with us today. Sure, happy to help. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, John. We certainly appreciate it. You are a wealth of knowledge on this stuff and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for so much to John Clark for coming on. We'll have all of his contact info in the show notes. As well as the link to the cooling letter that he referred to, right? I said, oh, you yeah. That. Yeah, that's right. We've got that as well. So lots of good information. And I know a lot of our listeners will probably have to take a deep look into what they're doing and wonder if this is worth tackling in 2021. <laughs> um, so I, I screwed up a little bit. I didn't know this, but after I, we talked to John Clark on the last episode, we talked to Christy about the LOAs. And then I was like, oh, she probably doesn't have any good stories. And so we ended up telling our own story. Turns out, I guess she's got incredible stories about doing all the RVSM certification all over the world. So we're going to have to get her back on the line soon and hear some of these crazy stories so in the meantime though you had talked about uh, you had teased a story about somewhere in greece doing a motorcycle ride or something <laughs> i guess yeah i guess i'm on the hot seat now so anybody again watch if you have good stories please let us know because we don't want to be the ones telling the stories all the time but yeah so we flew to this island called carpathos greece and it was a uh, kind of a more of off the beaten path, not like Mykonos or, or Santorini that everyone goes to. And so we flew in to Carpathos and we're going to stay there for a week or whatever. So we had set up a little rental car and the whole deal. So we're driving from the airport. that's kind of out by itself into town to our hotel. And right by our hotel, we turn the corner and there's Gatuli's motorcycles for rent. And they have like dual sport motorcycles and and the island is a lot of rural areas just from our research we've done. And so, you know, as we drive by, my head turns and I look over at, at the guy I was flying with and I said, dude, let's drop our bags off and turn this car in. And because there was like a, a Hertz rental car or whatever, it was right down the street. So we dropped off our bags at the hotel, turned in the rental car and rented two motorcycles for the week as our company transportation. And, but, and what kind of motorcycles are you taking? So one was a like air cooled like suzuki dr like there was a 250 and a 350 and the guy i was flying with he was bigger than me so i'm like all right you take the 350 i'll take the 250 and we ripped around that entire island dirt roads everywhere down to these like beaches that were riding through like all of orchards that down it pops out in a beach and there's like goats crossing and just everywhere we rode these bikes and, and, and just like you see in pictures of the little you know the hillside villages that are all white right stucco and you're ripping through the those and you know we had lunch at some lady's 
at her dining room that she like made us just because we were from not there. And it was just, it was incredible. And so we, <laughs> I had ridden dirt bikes a lot. So I had a ton of experience riding in the dirt and the other pilot, he had ridden a lot on the street, but not a lot on the dirt. So we had these, so he's kind of teaching me when you go around corners and how you kind of counter steer and about, and I'm just trying to explain to him when we go off road and how to ride. And, and it was funny. So he like, he laid his over when we were first going off road and like tore off one of the turn signals on the back and, and some stuff. And then, and, and then I was trying to keep up with him cause it's really hilly and he's on a two three fifty, So I'm winding mine out. Yeah. And, and a really high RPM. And, and then it gets, starts getting hard to start. It was electric start. So it wouldn't start an electric start and it would only start when I'd kick it, which means like, I'm like, we're kind of blowing the top end out of this. And so the compression is not as good. So it, you know, it needs a little bit more of a robust, spin to get it going and so so and so i was like yeah i should probably take it a little easier but of course i didn't and so we're, we're ripping around and we so then it won't start when i kick it and we're like a day or two from being at the end of the trip and i'm like oh geez so then i would have to park up on a hill and we i'd have to give it a good shove down the hill hop on and pop it pop the clutch in in second or third gear and it would turn over a few times and, it, and then it, and then it would run it was just you know you could tell it wasn't as powerful so so we rode the crap out of these bikes right Every, i mean i had like beer strapped to the back at one time we just we had our, our backpacks on with our snorkel gear and we would ride around everywhere and it was just it was a total free-for-all and and our passenger saw us we pulled into the hotel because we were staying at the same hotel <laughs> And we roll it on motorcycles and they just give us a slow head turn. Like, look at these idiots again. They're like, where did you, they were just like, what, this, what would you do? <laughs> so, so anyway, so we, we, we end up turning in these motorcycles at the end of this great week. I'll send you a couple of pictures you can post from, from this. Tell them about the story uh, of when you were like on a ride and you saw the airplane, like off, you were like riding oh, near the yeah, airport yeah. and you saw the airplane. Yeah. So, so, this place, it was not set up for business jets at all. So we, we dropped the passengers off kind of on the airline apron. And then we had to reposition the airplane. We basically parallel parked it at the approach end of the runway, like kind of there's a little bump out where there's like a, a run up area, I guess you would say, yeah. you know? And so we basically parallel parked it. Like we get there and they're like trying to tell us to park here. And I'm like, dude. And so it was one of the times with the engines running, Craig went down the stairs and got out of the airplane and, and closed up the, the air stairs from the outside on the Gulfstream, And he marshaled me because I didn't trust this idiot that was, that was doing it to, to, cause we had to put the mains like really close to the edge. And so I had him out there. I'm in there by myself. You know, it's just one of those things in business aviation. Like we say, you just kind of figure it out. That's was a figure it out day. And he's out there marshaling me and whole thing. So we parked the airplane there and we go up and we're on a ride up on this hill where these, these ruins that we wanted to check out, you kind of overlooking the airport and we get up there and we're looking and we see the C-130 holding short of the runway. And we see our plane in the back, just the wings shaking and the tail. And we're like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, did you, we set the gust lock, right? And so then you see the guy take the runway, add a bunch of power. And it's like the plane's shaking everywhere. We're like, geez, dude. And so we did, we did a good rock around. Like, they, they built those G3s yeah, pretty solidly. Like tank, luckily. So at the end of the trip, we turn in our motorcycles, right? At the at the place, and we run in. I shut it down, and they do their inspection and give me back my deposit and everything. And they go to Craig's. Like, oh, 
you break the turn signal. This is no good. And like the, something else. And they charge him like, you know, a bunch of money, 80 bucks for the turn signal. It's like 20 bucks on eBay, you know, and all this stuff. And we walk away and we're just like, well, and you just completely destroyed the top end of the bike. I hope he doesn't, I hope he doesn't start that thing up until we're out of here. Oh man. Well, that was it. there you go. I remember you like calling me from, Crease while you were doing that. I think we did a fantasy football draft too, like while you were there. Yeah, I did. It was like two in the morning and I'm there. Yeah, <laughs> good times. Good yeah, that was a blast. Yeah. If you've got a good story like that, maybe a good... I, every pilot's got a good overnight story and, and we want to hear them. So hit us up, let us know. Info at 215podcast.com. That is going to do it for episode number 45. Thanks to John Clark at Jet RVSM. Thanks to our friends at Harvey Watt. And thanks to Lindsay for coming on and giving us her perspective. Yeah, think we'll little six. Thank you. Good luck, cockpit Romeo out there. Relationships are tough. <laughs> I was just going to say, that's your catchphrase. Relationships are tough. That's right. Well, you can follow us on uh, social media at 215 Podcast. We've got more aviation license plates coming out through our Instagram feed. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Anything else you want to promote, Max? That's it. That's all I got. Until next time, Dylan. Flexibility. It's the key to air power. See you guys. See ya. Black God.